contains explicit language. In about four seconds, a teacher will begin to speak. I think they're deep. Let us begin. How? Who? What? Where? Why? And when? Will all be explained like instructions to a game. See, I'm not insane. In fact, I'm kind of rational when I be asking, what's up, Facade Podcast fam? How y'all doing? This is the Facade Podcast, hosted by the two of me, the professor, the student, hip-hop junkie, R&B savant, the radical conservative, hustler, never done foreman. The one who seeks to understand while being understood. Here, all are welcome. Now this is the season one, episode two of the Facade Podcast. And I am a son of hip-hop. And you are now listening to the best cultural punditry on earth. (laughs) Yay, yay. Yeah, so check it out. It's Saturday night. It's uh, 11.45 p.m. Yeah, we broadcasting from the Facade Podcast Studios. <laughs> yeah, so I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't I couldn't wait to get back to it. I done had two weeks. So just because you don't, so if you don't know, this is the first time listening to Facade Podcast. I am Dr. Brian Hoskins, right? And so this podcast essentially is about me unraveling me Unpacking my anger, my situation, my livelihood, the juxtaposition of being a professor, right, and a son of hip-hop, and everything that comes with that. Like, I covered all that in the last one. So we off that. We on, we on some new, new. And so over the last two weeks, whoo, a lot has transpired. Like, the world is, the world, the world ain't a safe place to be in, and I'm glad I'm in my little slice like, this, this is the first time in my life where, like, home, I just want to be home. I don't want to go nowhere, right? I don't want to have to interact with people that, you know, I don't have to interact with. It's just straight from the house to the office to the gym to the, where was it going? Walmart. I got to go, yeah, got to go Walmart because they, they got these blue chips. Oh. Man, so I, I, I don't know if my body processes corn well. Man, <laughs> these, hey, blue chips is the, whoa, yes, sir. I, I, I'm sorry, I digress. But anyway, and then I just go back to the house, right? Or yeah, I just go to places that I got to go to because, yeah, this place, this world is just, it's bananas. Like, I just, I just don't feel safe just in general. Plus, it's Texas. People out here with straps on their hips, right? They got the helmet on them. I seen them. I just out in the community. They just be out, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I need to get a strap, you know, so I could be out here with them. This Texas, this this gun amendment, Second Amendment rights, right? I should be out here to have a gun. But then I started thinking, <laughs> yeah. So when they see me walk in or come outside, I got the strap on me. Yeah, that that might not end right. So I just, yeah. So I, anyway, that's the conundrum. That we in. We are professor, but we are a son of hip-hop, and we just, we trying to live. So, anyway, that's out the way. My therapist. So, my therapist is, is the best person ever to unpack myself with, right? Black woman, I can't. So, part of the assignment of the Facade Podcast was to create an outlet for me to express myself. In order to do that, I had to agree to not give y'all the identity of my therapist. I can't even talk about her credentials. She is, she's on one, right? And so, you know, hey, we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but she's on one. And so every, every Facade podcast, I'm going to tell you what I did a little bit and try to help you, help yourself. And so my assignment that I was given, right, by my therapist the last time we had a discussion was essentially this. I need to find two hip-hop songs, right, that emotionally impacted me as a black man, right, at two different time points in my life, 
right? And then it's describe to her why I matter, right? And so I'm going to get ready. I'm going to have to do I'm going to do it again, so I'm getting ready to share it with you, with all of you, right? And so the two songs that I selected, right, and, and she, she tried to be funny, right? She was like, you need to find a, you need to find a, a, a two sixteen, two hot 16s. I was like, what? What do you know about a hot 16? But, but I'm mindful, like, right, like she's therapist, but she's herself too. So she, she a hip-hop head junkie too, right? And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, well, I'm going to find two hot 16s. And I couldn't. I could only find two hot 11s, right? They apply to me. In my life, right? And so here's the two artists that I chose. So I chose DMX, Slippin', which came out in 1998, right? Flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, 11 bars. I'm going to give y'all that. And then Nipsey Hussle's dedication, 11 bars on a victory lap, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to patch in, I'm going to play pieces of these songs, and then I'm going to read the lyrics to you. And then we're going to talk about it on the backside. First up, DMX, Slippin'. Now, what I didn't understand, so I see, my therapist thinks she's slick, right? But she, she's forcing me, well, not forcing me, she's helping me to find a way to patch into who I am as a person, right? Because again, I said I'm going through this anger situation, and if y'all want to learn more about that, you got to listen to season one, episode one, the inaugural joint, right? The origin story, listen to that, and you'll get the background. And so, but... These are the lyrics, right? And this this is how they apply to me. It was a great exercise because it made me think about, like, 1998. Like, that was 20 years ago, right? And so I, so I do believe that as black people, it's rare that we see our si- ourselves across a space-time continuum, right? So this, this is the Star Trekky coming out of me, right? A- across a space-time continuum. I tell students all the time when I see them, I'll be like, yo, when I see you, I see myself in the past, and when you see me, you should see yourself in the future, right? And so right now, I look at my calendar that's in my phone, and I be like, man, I know what I'm doing all the way until August the 5th. That's when my second, that's when my critical race theory class ends in the summer, August the 5th. So I already know, right? Like right now, I got like 37 things to do, like events. I got talks. I got consulting, all this other stuff, right? And so... I'm in the future already. Like I'm I'm in the future living, which is I'm half in the future, half in the present. And I don't like that. But that's something else to talk about. But this song made me reflect on the past, right? And so these are the lyrics. So he says, I've been through mad phases to find my way. And now I know that happy days are not far away. If I'm strong enough, I live long enough to see my kids. Doing something more constructive with their time than beds. So that's the first four. And so at the time, my son was one years old, right? And so I was, I was still trying to find myself because I hadn't popped off yet. I was at the Department of Tourism, and that job was trash. I was, I was, I was uh, telling some people the other day, I was like, man, I made, 11, I made $11 an hour, fresh out the grief of SMU. I was at the Department of Tourism in the state of Oklahoma. Right? Getting $11 an hour. And then when I went and negotiated, I worked really hard. I worked, my first year, I was like, yeah, I need to go ahead and let's, let's do this. I need a raise. They was like, yeah, we're going to give you an annual raise. And it's uh, 25 cents. <laughs> what? <laughs> 25 cents? I was like, wait, but I, I worked hard. And then they just shifted the conversation to, yeah, you worked hard, but, you know, we don't. We've been getting complaints about you wearing your hair braided out in the field and 
We don't like that. And it, it was just, oh, I don't want to get traumatized thinking about it, but I was trying to find my way, right? But I was thinking, th- things going to get better, right? Because I had a son, I was like, you know, if I can keep my son, if I can get him to college and keep him out of prison, I did what I was supposed to do as a father, right? Then he says, I know because I've been there. Now I'm in there. Sit back and look what it took for me to get there. And it took, it took, I look back on my past. Like, sometimes I think about SMU, I really don't even know how I got to college. Like, I was smart. I was first generation, college going, right? So SMU, again, they just gave me this History Makers Award for black alumni, right, for the work I do with the community village and the village program and the colors buying box and all these things to help black children navigate this hostile world. And so I was like, man, but how did I get here? to the PhD. Like that story is, is, is mired in, I got gaps in my memory, right? But I'm like, okay, I really didn't get time to sit back and think about how I got there, right? So that matters. Then he said, first came to Ulish, the drama with my mama. She got on some fly-ish, so I split. And say that I'ma be that seed that don't need much to succeed. Strapped with mad greed and a heart that doesn't bleed. I'm ready for the world, or at least I thought that I was, right? And so I am adopted, right? And so at the time, I hadn't known my my birth mother 10 years yet, but we was always getting into it. Man, she was on the... Whoa, she was on it, right? He's notioned about identity, who I am, I'm faking who I am because I'm a Hodgkins and all this other stuff, and it was just hurtful dealing with that, right? So I had to go through this notion of, okay, well, if she gave me away as a black woman, then I'm likely undeserving of the love of black women, right? And how much of that is my fault? And what is what is my role in, in trying to love myself, right? And so I, I just remember back in the day, I had met black women, one in particular, that was like, hey, you know, I love you. It was like, it was like one of the first times I ever heard somebody say I love you when I was in my collegiate days. And I remember saying to her, like, I can't love you back because I don't love me. Right? And so that that 11 by DMX, it just made me think, you know, I'm slipping. <laughs> I'm falling. I got to get up, get back on my feet so I can smash it up. And what, the thing that makes me, that touched me the most And I I always gravitate towards this, right? He begins a song by saying to live is to suffer, but to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. Man, it just, I mean, okay, I ain't trying to get emotional. But I'm just like, hey, that that got to me, right? Like even now, I'm I'm trying to make sense of my place as I walk through earth, right? Like I, I have to have meaning, in the suffering in order for me to accept the fact that I'm suffering, right? And I don't want y'all to be saying, well, you know, yeah, that's that's professor problems. I mean, but it's not because I'm black, right? So I'm still connected to a people that's suffering, right? So when black boys and girls are killed by police, for instance, right? Or their parents aren't allowed to bribe illustrious universities, to get their children in, right? Black people, we don't get no, we ain't get no, that ain't for us. Like, we don't get those opportunities. I'm not writing a $10 million check to Stanford to get my daughter into Stanford because her SAT was low. I'm not doing it. Like, why Why would y'all just pay the tuition? Like, tuition at Stanford, even if tuition at Stanford is 65, right? So, for 65, it's like 130, you know, for two years. I'm like, I'm sitting at less than half a meal. Why would I ever? Check for ten million dollars. Yeah, that's asinine. But I'm sorry that I, I just wouldn't do it, right? And so I just, I just, I, I feel bound, right? Like I feel culturally bound. Like I still don't have the freedom to move through this earth, un, like unimpaired, like with no impediments. I can just move through. Anyway, the second song, Nipsey Hussle. So if you didn't get the Victory Lap album, you need to go get it. And so it's the spacing, right? So it's 20 years between 1998 and 2018. Nipsey drops Victory Lab. I thought it was the best album, like, of 2018. 
And that's that's a whole other discussion we could have. Next time, I'm going to talk about my favorite albums per year for the last nine years, like this whole decade. We'll get into it, right? But but right now, Nipsey Hussle. So the song is called Dedication. It's with Kendrick Lamar, right? And here's the verse. It starts mid-verse about what Nipsey's saying, and I'm going to break it down on the backside. Here you go. Tupac of my generation, blue pill in the fucking matrix, red rose in the gray pavement, young black nigga trapped and he can't change it, know he a genius, he just can't claim it, cause they left him no platform to explain it, he frustrated so he gets faded, but deep down inside he know you can't fade him, how long should I stay dedicated, how long till opportunity need preparation, I need some real nigga reparations, or I run up in your bank just for recreation, dedication, <laughs> and Nipsey unloaded the whole clip on that. And so I identify with some of the things that he was saying, right? So I'm talking to my therapist. I'm, I'm thinking about my self-loathing in 1998, about how I didn't feel like I was deserving of the love of a black woman. I was fighting with my with my birth mom. Like I was just, I was, I was in anguish. I was in emotional anguish, right? And so it was difficult for me to... Um, to, again, love myself, to even understand what love meant, right? But when I heard this song here, Dedication, which is just about dedication, right? Like the hook, dedication, hard work plus patience. The song of all my sacrifice, I'm done waiting. I'm done waiting. Yeah, I told y'all I wasn't playing. I know y'all hear what I've been saying, dedication, right? It's dedication. So he, he's talking about how he's dedicated. But this is what gets me about the first verse. This the remedy the separation. Tupac of my generation. Blue pill in the in Matrix. Right? So to me, he's saying, I'm separating myself from the normative gaze of people that ain't a part of the culture. Right? Like, I'm going to do me. I'm going to have face tats. I'm going to have marathon clothing. I'm going to drop these albums. Right? Like, he's going to do his thing. Tupac of his generation. Woo! That's a humble brag, a humble brag. Crenshaw, my favorite hip album, but Victory Lab was hot, right? Blue Pill in the Matrix. Y'all ain't seen Matrix, you better get it. Red Rose in the Gray Pavement. Young black brother trapped and he can't change it. No, he a genius. He just can't claim it because they left him no platforms to explain it. <laughs> now, see, that, that moves me, right? Because that speaks to Someone is looking at him and devaluing him, right? So he's the rose in the pavement. Roses ain't supposed to grow in the pavement, right? Because they don't have a, they don't have a proper soil. There's no soil on the pavement. So despite the environment around him and the low expectations of those outside of his culture, he's still growing, right? Feel like he's trapped and he can't change it. No, he a genius. He just can't claim it. Got no platforms to explain it. There are a lot of times that. Young black brothers come to my office or that I'm just talking to when I go home to Oklahoma about how they feel like they don't have a voice. They don't have a lane to be in. They don't have any mentorship. Nobody got their hand out to keep them going, right? Like they, don't, they feel out of place, right? And so I, when I heard this, I was like, man, this is real. Nipsey's not the only person. It's times that I feel in certain ways that I don't have platforms to explain things, right? So it's not just... A phenomenon that's that's happening to a certain black man is happening to the majority of us, right? Like if I got a chance to interview, which would be hot, majority of black men, I, we could have these conversations, and probably with black women too. Like we don't have a platform or outlet to explain our frustration, right? He frustrated, so he get faded. Well, you know, so we we all got maladaptive coping strategies. Some of us get faded for a variety of ways that I won't delve into, right? Right, and so. Deep down inside, he know you can't fade him. That's me. Like, I know. I, I can't be faded. So, this academy is a good place to be in, right? I mean, I'm a visitor here. It's like, it's not my home. In hip-hop culture, what my identity is and my knowledge, I can't be faded, right? How long should I say dedicated? That's the question. Like, I'm sure. There's been times when, before I got became a professor, it was times I was in jobs saying, man, I need to get up out of here. I need to quit. They don't care about me. I'm quitting. <laughs> so that, I'm a flashback, right? So 98, 99, well, no, 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 no. We're going to go 2000, so from like 98 to 2005. Like it was the time I had three jobs at once. 
<laughs> right? I was working at the Oklahoma State Regents office, and I was working at, um, where else was I working? I was working at Oklahoma State Regents office. I was working at uh, U.S. Cellular. <laughs> hey, so sidebar. U.S. Cellular was the first cellular company to have free incoming calls. And when I tell you, people would call me because you're going to get a thousand minutes. And I would say, hey, I'll call you right back. <laughs> I won't try to lose those minutes, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> U.S. Cellular, it's Oklahoma State Regional Office, and I was working at FedEx. I had three jobs, man. I had three jobs, man. I, I, was, I was out there getting it, right? So I questioned myself. Should I stay dedicated to this hustle? Because these were hustles, not a career path at all in sight at the time. These were all hustles. Right? Then he says, how long to the opportunity meet preparation? Right? So he's getting prepared to blow. He, he sees the bubbling is occurring, right? I need some real reparations for I run up on your bank on some recreation. <sighs> We've had these discussions about how reparations for descendants, for African descendants of the shadow slave trade should look. Right? I won't deep dive into it too deep, but I'm thinking this. 0% interest loans, no college tuition, right? Those are two things. If we could get just those two things for 100 years, we still wouldn't be able to catch up, but for sure we'd be able to pass generational wealth, right? So I'm, I'm going to put a pin in it right there. But that exercise really got me to thinking about who I was then and who I am now. And so some of who I am is still there, right? I got some residue. Right? It's just certain things like I'm not gonna be disrespected. I don't care who you are. I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not tolerating it. I don't care if you're the president or if you're the janitor. Like, I'm not gonna be disrespected. We're gonna have a discussion about it immediately. Like that's to my core who I am. But over time I've changed. I become more conservative about certain things, more liberal about others, I'm more mindful about my life, my my mortality, right? So I, again, I'm not gonna have a strap on me in these streets, not doing it, even though as a citizen I should do it. Right. And so it was a good exercise. So I challenge all the listeners out there. Find two songs. So R&B may be your groove or hip hop. Find two songs about who you once were. Well, at a time of your life and who you are now, I want high 16s. Right. High 16s. Reflect on yourself. I promise you, you're going to get emotional, but it worked for me. Hopefully it'll work for you. Right. And so we're going to get to this, this first block. Right. That's not the way. First block. Either. Or neither nor, right? And so I like this. Last time I looked at uh, Solange and 2 Chains, <sighs> had some time to soak them in, a Solange album. Yeah, not so much. It's like a C+. Plus. The 2 Chains album, it ain't pretty girls love trap music, right? So that's like, it's like a B-. minus. It's cool. They did their thing. So this time I figured I'd switch it up. So I went to go see uh, Captain Marvel Thursday. Was that? Was, we went, okay. I'm going to go see, excuse me, Captain Marvel on Thursday, right? Man. Now, <laughs> I've seen all 20 Marvel movies, right? All 20 of them. Captain Marvel, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the lower quadrant, right? It's, it's like, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. It didn't resonate with me. Right? So the storyline didn't resonate with me. She was not believable as a uh, Shiro. She just wasn't. Right? And I, but I'm going to tell you why. So there's this notion that black women are the saviors of earth. Right? And I concur. Like I, I can point out strong black women like in my house, in my mama's house, at this university, just randomly at the bus stop that's um, making you your meal behind the counter that's, uh, like, on TV acting. Like, black women are just phenomenal. Like, this is their time to shine. Black men would just fall back <laughs> with the ego and let the black women's voices be centered, right? Then we elevate as a people, right? So what I didn't like about the Captain Marvel, right? And I don't want to give spoilers away because some of y'all probably haven't seen it. But she just human. I'm leaving it at that. She's just human. So an accident happens to her for her to get her power, right? Now she can fly. She got proton hands with light to come out the hands, right? But what she don't have is confidence. 
she don't have any confidence, right? She can't remember who she is, but she had, and I was surprised that the Monica Rambo character, and I say Rambo, not, not Stallone, but Rambo character is her best friend, a black woman pilot. Because I didn't know the Captain Marvel story. I know her storyline, so I wasn't familiar. But I heard that, I was like, oh, I seen her on the screen. I was like, oh, oh, she got a black daughter too? Oh, this is hot. So Nick Fury meets Captain Marvel in the beginning in a, in a Blockbusters. Now, Blockbuster is out of here, been out of here. Netflix got them out of here. No, sorry. Red Book, Red Box. My bad. I see it's been so long since I used it. Blockbuster was the joint, right? It was in the 90s, my era of, of winning, of shining, of, of transitioning from Steve Urkel to Stefan, who I am now, represent Blockbuster, Redbox, Netflix, and got Redbox out of here, right? So they meet there, and he figures out about these shapeshifters that's on Earth, right? And what is interesting to me is that 90 minutes of the movie, Captain Marvel has no confidence in who she is. They keep flashing back to all these times when she failed. Literally, she fell out the sky. One time she's training, looked like to be, to be in the Air Force, right? But what is intriguing is that in order for her to begin to believe herself again, even though she has this emotional deprivation, she has to go to Monica Rambo, and Monica Rambo picks her up off the ground and puts her back together again, <laughs> right? By letting her know that my friendship was important. It was central to us. You can do this, girl, right? And then this is what it's over the top. So the young daughter, Maria, takes out this photo out. Well, I guess this box and takes out all these things. This is a picture of you when this was us when I was at my play. And this is a picture when I, we were with the family. And this is a picture of you by yourself and blah, blah, blah. And so they give her this confidence, right? They give her the confidence to save the world from aliens, real aliens, right? Even though she's not, well, I don't want to give it away. Anyway, yeah, from real aliens, she's just a regular human with these superpowers that she accidentally acquired, but she don't have confidence in herself. And so Maria's like, hey, I'm going to jazz up your uniform. So she has this really bland uniform. But the Captain Marvel uniform that you see in the trailer, a black girl designed that. Yeah, black girl designed it. She was out there designing it, right? And so I'm like, hey, black women contributed. Their voices were central. Even Nick Fury. He had a lot of lines to say. But it just reminded me, I was like, man, this movie's not good to me. Because the central character, who's a white woman, needed to lean on black women. They, need, they had to carry her emotional deprivation to give her confidence to shine, right? So it reminds me of Matrix, right? So you got the Matrix, you got Neo's the character, right? But Morpheus, black man, has to talk Neo up, white man, to believe in himself, led to the big advance, right? You got big advance, Will Smith, talks up the white golfer, right, to believe in himself, right? So even though these people are good enough to talk, the white folks into being sheroes and heroes, they ain't good enough to be the hero or the shero, right? And so, yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't feeling Captain Marvel, right? Because the protagonist ended up being the hero, the shero, right? But she was trash. Her emotion, her emotional instability was trash. She didn't believe in herself. So I ain't like that. So I parallel that to the or, right? So Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, so many people that I know that got black kids that was like, hey, I took my black kids to go see Spider-Man into the universe. Miles Morales, who is half black and half Latinx, he's the protagonist. He's the Spider-Man. He's great. He saves the day. It made my kids feel like they could be heroes when they left the theater. And my first question to them was, where was the black woman and the black girl in the movie? Uh, huh? I said, yeah, well, what was the black girl and the black woman in the movie? And so I did, every time I go see something, if I don't see myself in that something, or a black woman or a black girl in that something, I don't like it. And so even though Spider-Man is great, 
great character, right? First time I saw a black Spider-Man, it was cool. It was just like Black Panther. I'm like, man, it's the Black Panthers. It's Wakanda, African nation, all black people in the nation, right? So I was trying to, I was still trying to figure out how it was light skin black people in the nation if there was never any people that wasn't. But that's a whole other conversation. And so I was like, hey, uh, yeah, Spider-Man, Spider-Verse, I didn't like it. And they was like, well, why you didn't like it? I was like, okay, let's break it down. So you got Miles Morales, right? His daddy's black. Mama's a teenager. That's great. His father's a cop. Okay. I know some black police officers, so his father's a cop, right? But his uncle, who's actually cool, he's one of the coolest characters in the movie, is the villain, the Prowler. Right? So his uncle's a, a criminal, but his daddy's a cop. Take the juxtaposition, right? It's the it's the uh, Professor X, Magneto, juxtaposition, right? And so what really bothered me about this movie, too, is that Miles, he don't have that confidence either. He's doubting himself. And, they, and when they pan, it's like, it's like my life flashing in front of me. They start him in the hood, and they pan as he's riding the train to go to his to the rich side of town, right? And so the graffiti burns away. The bridges get better. The buildings get better. Then he's there with the uniform on, like Fresh Prince used to wear with the with the blue jacket, right? And he can't find a friend in the whole school. So he's befriended by this white girl. Who's cool to him, right? Yeah, that was odd. Like that, like that was his first choice to befriend with a white girl. That was That was intriguing to me. Right, that was intriguing. And so, she's a spider person too, right? So, in this, and I don't want to, I'm just assuming y'all already didn't see it, right? So, Miles Morales is a Spider-Man. He learns that he is a Spider-Man because he gets bit. Same way as Peter Parker got bit, right? And then he turns into Spider-Man, right? And he ends up seeing Kingpin trying to create this device to essentially go back in time and bring his dead wife and son to life. Right, so it's this multi-dimensional opening, but before that, he learns that you know Peter Parker. They look up for Peter Parker. Then when the dimension opens, he runs into another Spider-Man who has to train him to be Spider-Man. I don't understand that part. Like Peter Parker trained himself. Nobody trained Peter Parker how to be Spider-Man. Nobody. He trained himself. He was a white boy at the time. Became white man in the process. Right, like. He was smart enough to know how to do it himself. But Miles wasn't. He needed a tutor. He needed extra training, right? Was it because he was black and Latinx? I don't know. Like, it dips into the stereotypes. Then all the other spider people in the verse, they doubt Miles too. Like, they spider people. They already, already been trained in they multiverses. No Peter Parker training them. They came ready to the party, right? They was ready. Miles didn't bring nothing to eat. He didn't bring nothing to drink. He didn't even bring a house gift. He, he wasn't ready to be Spider-Man, right? But what got me the most was at the very end, after Miles contributes to saving the day, like the, the film theme is anyone can wear the mask. And like that's, that was disappointing to me, right? Like, when we finally get a black and Latinx Spider-Man, why can't he just be the sole hero by himself? Why can't the entire city depend on him? To save the day. Why got to be anybody can be Spider-Man? Like, everybody can be Spider-Man. When Peter Parker was Spider-Man, it was just him. Right? Only only the white man got to be the hero. But for him, like, we get the black Latinx Spider-Man. He can't even be the hero by himself. Everybody can. He's easily replaced. He's to the left, to the left. Everything he owns in a box, including his Spider-Man outfit, is to the left. Because he can be replaced. He's, he's replaceable. But not Peter Parker. And so that just, ugh, that bothered me, right? So just, even though that's my either or, right, like, I can take it or leave it because neither one of them allow black people to be as great as we are in the movies. And I know it's just Marvel and people be like, oh, you're overthinking it. We're tired of you processing. Or oh, what about, who cares about stereotypes? It's just a movie. Yeah, it is. But I'm willing to bet that these young black kids that saw Black Panther for the first time that grew up with a black president, they have unlimited 
perspectives about who they can be. Their imaginations. No ceilings on their imaginations. Right? So, neither nor. I've been wanting to get into this topic, to these two topics, because they coupled. Right? And we we at the 35th minute. And so I'm, I'm going to get into it because I told myself I'm only going to do this for one hour, but I think we're going to push long on this one. So neither nor. Right? So the neither is toxic masculinity. Right? And I've been, I've been waiting to weigh in on this because I've been biting my tongue about it and I, I seen myself make some transformations inside. So I didn't hit some personal goals. Like it's people that used to be close to me, black men, like we not as close. Because I done checked them on some things that they done said that was toxic, right? And so they got mad. So they, they distanced themselves from me, and I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. But toxic masculinity, right? It's a term that's essentially about that I believe it intersects at this notion of fear of black men who are gay, right? And about decentering black women from a position of power, right? And so, so I'll give you a quick example. Right, and so to be toxic and male just in general, that means you can um, you can marginalize, you can silence, you can try to erase women, right? But you mansplain. I, don't know, I, don't, I hate I hate that term. I don't know who created that term. Mansplain that don't make no sense to me. But that's what they call it, right? So to be toxic in your masculinity, I believe, is that you're just overdoing it. We know you're a man. We do shave. It's okay. You could take a bath. You could cry. Every now and then, it's okay. You're still a man. We get it. Goodness, we get it. But it's this, it's this whole pause phenomenon, right? And so I'm trying to figure out what pause. So first, I didn't know what pause meant, right? And so to me, I associate pause as the 2.0 of no homo, right? And so it's intriguing for me to hear black men say pause whenever they say something that is going to cast them in a pejorative light or questions their sexuality, right? And so I can say something like, uh, <laughs> so I hear basketball players, like people that, that watch basketball, they may say, well, these basketball players, uh, he can dribble well, um, he's long in the paint. And so if I had toxic masculinity, I would say, you know, well, he can dribble well and um, he's long, pause, or I may say he uh, he has a very big game, pause, right? And I'm like, what, what, the, what is it got? Like, the, like, that don't make sense to me, right? There's no need for me to pause. Like, if I say something that you interpret as could, could say that I'm homosexual, like, that's on you. That's your, your interpretation of me. It's like if you perceive me as violent just because I'm black, that's on you. Like, I'm not going to correct myself to say that I'm not violent because I'm not, right? And I'm not going to say pause when I say something about guys, right? So if, if a black man looks good, I'm going to say that brother looks good. I'm not, how, how should I say pause after that, right? That don't mean I want him. That just means that he looks good. I, I, hey, I clean up well, so I look good too. I tip my hat to myself. I put the bow tie on. Y'all can see me out here. My African regalia. I looks good, right? And if a black man tells me I look good, I don't consider him gay. I don't say, tell him to say pause, right? That don't make sense to me. But that's just an example of the toxic masculinity, right? But part of that too, that's my neither. It ties into my nor, which is just misogynoir, right? Excuse the pun, right? So misogynoir, I'll give you a little history lesson. So Moya Bailey, queer black feminist, trade the term. Misogynoir, right? To explain how black women, how misogyny attacks, uh, distorts, hurts, harms black women, right? And so essentially, I'm going to give you some examples. So misogynoir, black men, I think, are, we do it a lot against black women, right? So we put, them, we put black women based on who they are in these spaces, in these four spaces, right? So sassy black woman. Sassy black woman, right? Like, I've heard black men say that of uh, uh, Angela Rye, right? Or Amanda Seals, right? So, for instance, Amanda Seals recently, she got on her IG. She has 16 black women tell her about a black man who was inappropriate. He was on his 
let me possess you. Not R. Kelly-ish, right? Or Bill Cosby-ish. But it was some sexual assault things that were being discussed, right? And so she got on her IG and she was like, hey, I know this dude out here. These people have, these sisters have confided in me and I'm not telling you who they are, but they out here talking about him. 16 is a high number, right? Like, like what number do we need to get to to listen to black women? Is it 16? Is it one? Is it 50? Right? That when black women say I've been sexually assaulted or harmed or this black man or somebody, anybody said something to me that was sexually offensive. Like, when do we listen to that? Right? So, sassy black woman, that's the first one. Hypersexual Jezebel. That's the second one. Right? Like, so, I, I live on Twitter. So I done read some stuff about Tracy Ellis Ross. Man. It, it's beyond shooting a shot. Right? And Tracy, Tracy Ellis Ross is she, oh man, she's fine. She's beautiful and fine, right? And her persona, well, I don't know if it's, it's who she is, but the persona, what I see her to be, like, she's fun. Like, she's classy to me. But, man, I done read some comments. Brothers, this, they, they just say stuff they shouldn't say about what they want to do to her sexually. They've hypersexualized her, right, in a Jezebel way. Angry black woman. Ooh, Monique. Monique is the, the new angry black woman, right? It was interesting to watch Steve Harvey talk her down off of her saying, I was treated unfairly. You told me I was treated unfairly. When I went to the public sphere and said that you said I was treated unfairly, you didn't have nothing to say. Basically, he called her angry. Like, she's the angry black woman. She gets to be attacked for one incoming equality. Right? That, that's an example. And the fourth one is the strong black woman, right? So the black woman, she just can't, and this has a juxtaposition, right? So either she's like Annalise Keating and Olivia Pope, where she's extra strong and helps everybody except herself. And she don't have the energy to get her personal life together because she's too busy helping people like Captain Marvel who got low self-esteem, right? Sorry, but that's, that's it, or black women are just so strong that they don't need no help, right? And those are, those are just some examples of how misogynoir functions because it's specifically directed at the black woman. Misogyny is at all women, but misogynoir is just for black women, right? And so that's my neither nor, right, toxic masculinity or misogynoir. I want y'all to, to dive into those words because if you're a black man, that says, I don't want to be married to a black woman that makes more money than me. That's toxic masculinity. Mixed with, I can make the argument misogynoir. If it's because you believe that as a black woman, she's worth less than you, right? You're worthless for saying that, right? That's, that's who you are. That's my take on that, right? And so just, just be mindful. If you say, as a black man, I don't date black women because they too loud, they too controlling, right? Like, and you got a black mama, like, not only are you just a weak black man, but you, in your toxic masculinity, feelings, practicing your misogynoir. So get up out of that. Well, actually, if you don't date black women, continue to don't date them because they don't need you to further pull them down, right? So they need to miss you, which would be a good thing for them, right? When some doors close, other windows open, we get that. So, yeah, toxic masculinity, misogynoir, check those out. So now I'm finna cut into... What we're not going to do, right? So here's what we're not going to do. What we're not going to do is shame Russell Westbrook for wanting to lay hands on folks, right? And this is what we're not going to do. I, I narrowed it down because I was going to talk about sister wives or hoarders and this church Christ situation. But I was like, you know what? I got a call from somebody in the media in Utah because I, I was in Utah working on my Ph.D., Right, got my PhD in 2013, University of Utah, Education, Leadership, and Policy. I got a call from a media, a member of the media, and he was like, "Hey, can I quote you about the Russell Westbrook situation?" And I was like, "Most certainly, you can." So I'm gonna play a clip of that, and then I'm gonna talk about how I feel about what we're not gonna do is talk about Russell Westbrook bad, and because he wants to lay hands, and I'm gonna talk about it on the B side. The conduct 
of jazz fans is once again under a national microscope after last night's heated exchange between Russell Westbrook of the Oklahoma City Thunder and a fan sitting courtside. Deseret News reporter Eric Woodyard captured part of it on video. situation is not only was he shamed for wanting to lay hands, right? So, so let, let me let me pause. So if you ever hear somebody black say, I swear to God, right? And they and they doing this, I swear to God, right? Or they hit you with the I put that on everything I love. Like whatever they whatever they say after that, like you need to be you need to be aware that they they basically done ratcheted it up in some yeah, like you need to be ducking, maybe. Like you, you know, you need to be looking for exits, or you, you might need to be gathering up the people that's with you because some that that those statements are like, I'm finna go to war. I, I hear that as I'm finna go to war, right? I put that on God, or I put that on. I swear to God, I put that on everything I love. Like you, in, you in trouble. You cross the line that you may not. Like you may wake up with them standing over you. Like right after, right after that happens. Like you just don't know how that's gonna end. Right, you you just you just really don't know. It's the same thing with what we're not gonna do. Like I said last time, like those are, are types of you you can like hear like the flick. I don't got I don't got a lighter, but you can hear the like Little Wayne used to like the flick at the beginning of Carter's. Like you can hear the fuse lit right when they say that. So Russell Westbrook, people interpreted that as he's gonna be violent, even though he said he would be violent, right? He was pushed into that space. So I'm 2,000% I'm behind him. But my point in the interview is, and this is what's interesting too, like we talked, I talked to the reporter for like 10 minutes and it boiled down my conversation to like that little, that little blurb you heard is like 10 seconds, right? But I don't know how, so I'm an avid film watcher, right? So if, if we're talking about movies, greatest movies of all time, right? So like my, Across gen, across genre, so I'm looking at in no particular order. Matrix, Departed, Inception, Boys in the Hood, Get Out. Like that's my top five movies, and I could get deeper, but that's my top five. But I said that to say I watched this movie called The Fan, and if you ever seen The Fan, so the, the movie's about fandom gone awry. Right, and so in in the movie, Wesley Snipes is a baseball player for the San Francisco Giants. Right, like he's Barry Bonds, like around the time Barry Bonds was cooking. Right, and De Niro is this white male who has envy, right, about the fan, about the player Wesley Snipes. Right, and it ties into today. So I, the psychology of the white male fan that's that's a fanatic, right, in this movie. I saw parallels of that when they interviewed the person who disrespected Russell. And so I believe that some people believe, some white males who are fans, that's in Utah, because I was asked, do you think Utah fans are racist? Right? I said, so some believe that when they purchase a ticket, they can say whatever they want to to the players on the basketball court and expect that there be no retaliation. So it goes back to Laura Ingram saying to LeBron, shut up and just dribble. Right? Like, they believe when I purchase the ticket, I'm purchasing you for two hours. 
for you to entertain me, to give me your attention, right? To be out there in front of me. It's a privilege for you to be a millionaire because of me, because I paid. And there are parallels, I believe, that tie directly into slavery, right? And these notions of being able to control the movement of the black body, right? Cornel West talks about this normative gaze of whiteness, like it is always watching. It gets into these notions of this double consciousness that Du Bois talks about, which is why people of color code switch, right? So we one way over here with ours, but we a different way over here with yours, right? Because we realize that over here with yours, some of y'all paid the ticket. Y'all think because we hired you, you need to perform a certain way at this job. I gave you opportunity because I let you into this college. I gave you the scholarship. I was on the committee that granted you the scholarship. So ain't going to be no kneeling at the college football games as a cheerleader. We strip you of your scholarship, right? And so there are parallels that made me say, well, hey, I was, I was proud of Russ. He powered up. I was like, that's what you say. You defend yours, your honor. Like, I, when I was younger, if that was me, I might would have said some similar things that was similar to what Russ said, right? But I'm mindful of who he is. I'm from Oklahoma. He's a Thunder fan. He's a Thunder player. Decided to stay. Talked George in the coming. Ran Durant out. Durant. That's a whole nother discussion. But ran Durant out. And so I look at Russ. I admire Russ for doing his thing. So what we're not going to do is shame Russell Westbrook for wanting to lay hands. What we need to do is shame these fans that believe because they played a ticket, they can talk to somebody any old kind of way. Because you know if you saw Russell Westbrook at the gas station, you wouldn't talk to him like that. You wouldn't be telling him get on his knees like he used to, which has historic ramifications. Right? It's connected. That's why Russell says it's, it's racial. You're not going to say that to Russell. Stop inviting me into your genitals, for one. Nobody should do that. Just don't do that, right? Because after that, again, he put <laughs> he put that on God. Like, like everything he loved, he got to lay hands on you and your wife. Don't do that, right? So, again, we I support Russell Westbrook, 2,000%. So, anybody that says that he, he should be suspended and they find him $25,000, which is a lot of money. That could have went to scholarships for kids to go to school or to a food pantry or something with meaning, right? So I don't think it should have been fine either. But that's a whole nother issue. I, I'm, I'm, finna, I'm finna be off this. I'm, I'm off that. That's what we're not going to do. So, almost the last block. So we're talking about, right? And so I had the feedback for talking about, man, it was amazing. Like, I was surprised. You don't really know how many people are listening to you until they tell you that they listening to you. Until they crawling into your DMs. Like, it was my DMs with the feedback. Well, the guy's feedback was in there. Yeah, well, your mic was hotter. Or you should have uh, told what you was going to talk about at the very beginning. Sounded like you was rambling. Like, like all, all, the, all the guy critiques. They was in a toxic masculinity. Well, they wasn't. But they was... They was really critical, right? But all the women that had something to say was all supportive. Like, it's, it's good. I, I feel the exact same way. I can't be the same person I am. It, <laughs> at work, so it was just uh, one woman. I ain't going to say her name. She was like, hey, I'm a third grade teacher. And sometimes I want to take my belt off and, and whoop these kids because they bad. But I can't do it. Like, that's who I am. I whoop my own kids. But when I come here, I can't whoop my kids. I got to leave my real self at the door. It, that was funny, but it made sense to me, right? And so I got a little feedback. So I'm getting ready to play a clip, right, from, if you're on Twitter, I live on Twitter, at Shantara MCB, right? So it's S-H-A-N-T-E-R-R-A-M-C-B. Here's a question. I think. New technology challenge. Let's try it again. My question is, if you intentionally selected a black woman as your therapist? And if so, why? So the purpose of this interview is to whoa, 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 whoa. get your perspectives whoa. about your leadership experiences. Hold on. And so oh, your, I want you to talk about two organizations that you've been part of. 
Right, we're not doing that. So are you on a as it relates to historically black? Oh, so we had we had a little snafu right there. So I, I may have to I'm at the punch in on that. We're gonna see. I may have to punch in on that. Probably not. Yeah, this is the facade podcast. That was that was me in my professorial role doing some interviews that I did uh, early last semester. Anyway, and so to answer the question, Shantara, MCB, I was purposeful. So when I relocated to the city I'm in now, I made sure that I had a black doctor, right? I got a black dentist, and that was random. So when I went to get the dentist, like I didn't even know that a black dentist was in the city I'm in. And so I got a black doctor, I got a black dentist, and I was like, I need a black therapist, right? And so black women are special to me. Like my grandmothers were black. Like my mamas was, are black. Like my children are black, like girls. And so it's just my wife is black, you know, like some of my harshest critics ain't married to black women. But that's a whole nother discussion. And so it's, I feel comfortable. Like, I've been, my great aunts are black women. So I, I, I spent my whole life talking to black women about this world and how harsh it is and how to navigate it and how to meet the expectations of my community. And so, yeah, I, w- I was purposeful in doing that. I'm most comfortable when I'm around black women. Because to me, they just transparent. They cool. Like, black men, I love black men, too. But they be flossing. I mean, I floss too. I floss a little bit. Black men, sometimes they be, they, they, for what? I don't want nothing you have. Right? That's not my thing. I'm not here to occupy, take anything that you have or own. Right? So that's, yeah, I, I don't, I try not to get into that. Right? And so that's why I chose a black woman therapist. And she's been great. She's changed my life. I mean, she's helped me reach into dark sides of myself that I knew existed that I didn't really want to get into because I compartmentalize really well. Like each one of my identities are separate to me in my mind. They don't overlap, right? None of them. I'm a professor. I'm a brother. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son, right? I'm an alpha. I'm a mason. Like all those, all those identities are totally separate to me. They don't overlap. And so she's allowing me to see that they do overlap, right? And one can, when one acts in a harmful way, they, they can all be harmed, right, or triggered. And so there are layers to me, right? She, I see my identities as on a chessboard, right? It's, it's a three-dimensional surface, but it's, a, it's flat, and each identity has a specific space. But she's teaching me to see my identities like a Jenga, like the game Jenga. So if, y'all, if you're going to get any game, get that Jenga. Jenga go hard. And so... She's taught me how to see my identities as jingle. Like they, if one of my identities is pulled out too soon, they all topple because they all interconnected. And so I'm still trying to wrestle with that because I don't see my identities as interconnected. And so I'm just I'm trying to fight through it. And so that, that was that was the first talking about. Now the second one, I'm gonna read the question because people will know who this person is <laughs> if if they read it. So I didn't play the voice print. So here's the question. Well, here's the statement and question. I experienced racial anxiety within my university environment because there are so many of them and only one of me in my department. Recommendations on how to better navigate the space and anxiety. So when I clicked this one and I heard who it was, I was like, man, I got a little reach out here into the cyberspace. I was turned up. I was like, man, I need to, should I? It was an awkward moment because I was like, man, should I ask them for their number? So I can call and talk to them about other things. And, you know, like, I, I'm a fan of this person, right? Because they're like a real person. They got a blue check, bar. They got a verified account on Twitter. And I'm like, they listen to my little my little old podcast. It's just me. I'm packing myself because of my therapist, right? But they, they hit me, and I was like, wow. So to answer the question, how do you better navigate the space and anxiety? So I get anxiety. True story. I got two prescriptions that my doctor wrote for me that I never went and got filled. Because every time I look at the prescriptions, I think about the Tuskegee experiment. Right? Like the Tuskegee experiment was like from 39 to uh, 32 to 72. It was like 50 years where they gave injected black people with syphilis. 
and never told them they had it. And watch them, watch these black men go home and impregnate their wives, and watch the wives have black children that was born blind. Right, some died, some of the parents died. Like I just don't, I don't, I have anxiety around healing myself. Like if I have to take a pill, I have anxiety around that. So I haven't, I haven't got those prescriptions filled because I'm afraid. Like that's like like my anxiety is, is, is it it paralyzes me in ways that I can't even I, like I can't even help myself, which is scary to me. But how do you better navigate the space? Like even on my campus and in this city, I just I still away and just talk to me about me and how I see the world. Like I have it's overwhelming to be in a space where people want to be collegial. They call you colleague, right? But they can be setting you up to get you up out of there. You won't never see it coming, right? And so I just, my recommendation to you would be, like, still away to yourself. A lot of times we, we go to social media for advice from strangers that we don't even know, right? Or sometimes we go to uh, people for advice in our circles that ain't lived the life that we live in. Or experience it, right? I tell my everybody, get advice from people who have done what you want to do or going through your circumstance. Please do that, right? That's important. Get the advice from them because they at least they got a perspective. I tell students all the time, I don't care about your opinion. All I care about is your perspective. Your perspective is tied to your lived experiences, your opinions based on nothing factual that you know about because you ain't lived it. Right? And so I was still away. Uh, if you believe in God, pray to your God. If not, like believe in yourself and have conversations about you and why it's important for you. Um, why do you have anxiety in that space? Is it because you're the only one like yourself? Right? And, and I get it. Like cultural congruency is important. Right? Gender congruency is important. Like you need to be in a space where you see yourself. I tell students, you can't be me if you can't see me. So I got to be in these streets. I got to be in the hood. Said I'm Dr. Hoskins, what's up? I didn't see a black professor until I went to SMU, until I was on a college campus. So when I go to read to the black, I got a chance to read at, at one of the schools, I think it was Alderson, Anderson School in the city, and it was like, I got the third graders. Man, they was, they, I love third graders. They just they made me cry. At the end, they all hugged me and got around me and hugged me, made me cry. But I love those kids, right? But I began by saying I'm Dr. Hoskins. So a third grader got to see a, a doc, black doctor, right? So just unpack why you feel those ways and then try to develop a plan to reduce your anxiety. But make sure if you go to the doctor, they give you a prescription. <laughs> as you, you fill the prescription, then take the pills. That's probably the best way to reduce your anxiety. I'm thinking that's probably the best way. Uh, and so that concludes Tom about, right? So we had, we had an hour and three minutes, and I done done a lot of talking. And so this is the, this the detangle part, right? Here's what I want y'all to consider. Like, we all connected. Like this whole earth, we all connected. And there was, there was a time when people in my community struggled with things. They were harmed or transgressed against, and it really hurt me. And it still hurts me, right? But then there were people outside of my community. When things happened to them, like I, my concern level was extra low, right? Because they weren't in my community, they weren't a part of my community, they was oppressing my community or, or gentrifying my community. So I really didn't care. But as I got older, I, like I see, like we, we all interconnected, right? Like the things that I do, if I move in a positive way, it's going to impact other people, unless they're just evil. So. So let me be clear. There are evil people on earth. But typically, if you're a person that senses good or can appreciate good, like you're going to move in a good way. So we all interconnected, right? And so I've always said to myself, but this is a mantra of mine, I'm never going to do evil, right? But I never try to do good. And so I'm rethinking that, right? So nobody can ever come to you and say, Hotch, man, he wronged me. He did this. He did me this way. He, he swindled me. He knew I was down to kick me. Like, I don't move like that. That's that karma going to come back and get you if you move like that. But I don't be doing good either. Like, I ain't, I ain't finna 
help you get your cat out to the tree. That ain't me. Like, if you mismanage your money, right, you spend your money on gambling or drinks. Like, don't come to me and ask me for money. I ain't paying for that. That's you. You got to live with that choice. Right? And so I'm just, I'm rethinking that. Maybe I need to be a person that does, that tries to go out and do good on purpose. I don't know. But that's, I mean, that's my detangle. Like, we all coupled. Some of us loosely. Uh, some of us strongly. But I think if we wake up every morning and say, hey, I'm going to be good on purpose. And I'm going I'm to use my goodness to be a catalyst for other people to be good, then I think we'll just all be in a better space because we're all interconnected. And so anyway, that's my detangle. Dr. B.K. Hoskins, son of hip-hop, <laughs> you have just experienced the best cultural punditry on earth, period. See you in two weeks. It's me signing out the Facade Podcast, bringing to a close. Season 1, Episode 2, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Yay, yay, we out.